0: The world's greatest economists agree that trust forms the basis for every enduring society and their economies. When two Soviet prisoners were once placed in separate cells, their tormentors tried to convince them that their partner had betrayed them and capitulated to the state. Yet their covenant with each other, their trust and mutual integrity, prevented this deception. Ultimately, the fabric of Christian community depends on the trust we can maintain in each other. A trust to love at all costs, never betray, and never break covenant. The topic today is the prisoner's dilemma. Life is so full of unpredictables not just for those trying to make decisions about becoming the body of Christ, but for everyone. I recently read a book by Lord Mervyn King, who was first the chief economist of the Bank of England, then its executive director, and next its deputy governor, and finally its governor, the latter for 10 years between 2003 and 2013. He was also a professor at the London School of Economics, a professor at Cambridge, at the City University of New York, at the Kennedy School of Harvard, and he enjoyed various other prestigious positions and accolades, one of which was that he was knighted for his work in economics by the Queen of England. I mention all of that because the book he wrote is, somewhat startlingly, titled the end of alchemy. So what is he calling alchemy in the context of the realm of his expertise? Well, the Lord Keene says that to treat paper as if it is gold in a money economy is a form of economic alchemy. That's what all the alchemists in the old days tried to do, to make unprecious substances into precious substances, especially into gold. He says that we must put an end to this economic alchemy if we're going to survive, because the economic disaster that started in 2007 through 2008 is not finished, he says. And if you think it is, he goes on to say, then you're in for a very big and unpleasant surprise, because we are headed toward an economic cataclysm of such proportions that people are going to be totally unprepared for it. The years 2007-8 were only the advancing edge of an economic hurricane. We've been in the eye of the storm ever since and can have no precise idea of how long we'll remain in the eye. But the trailing edge is fast approaching from our blind side, and it will be more catastrophic than any economic or political or social disaster in history, according to Lord King. It will be at least of the magnitude of the Industrial Revolution in terms of its effects on human life. Lord Keane explained four rules that govern economics, that we must understand if we are to avoid this crisis. One is disequilibrium, where things are no longer in harmony and balance, so a way must be found to bring them back into balance, back into equilibrium, as when an unbalanced budget needs to be balanced. The second rule that must be taken into account is radical uncertainty. People always look for certainties in life, but only God knows what's going to happen. The unimaginable always greets us somewhere down the road or around the next blind corner. But it's not always just the unimaginable bad things that happen. What the world sees as unimaginably good things can also happen. Lord King pointed out that it was unimaginable before they appeared on the scene that there would be an airplane that allowed people to fly through the air. Automobiles, machine guns, antibiotics, atomic bombs, computers were all pretty much unimaginable before they came on the scene. Nobody could have foreseen or made plans to cover all that might happen through these innovations. This is true whether for good or bad. Catastrophes happen, so you simply cannot reasonably say, I'm going to take the risk out of decision making. Life involves risk. That's rule two. Then the third rule that he named as essential in understanding economics is called the prisoner's dilemma. When you confront the prisoner's dilemma, you have to picture a scene in your mind to understand it. Here is the scene. There are two prisoners. They know each other on some level, and they are given a choice. But they are not allowed to communicate with one another about this choice or anything else. If, however, they will incriminate the other prisoner, then they will get a light sentence. If they don't incriminate the other prisoner, and he incriminates them, then they get the heaviest possible sentence. If neither one incriminates the other, then they're acquitted and both go free. But neither knows what the other will do, so how do they choose? The optimum outcome would be that both would go free. But in order to do that, they'd have to know with certainty, and this is the Bank of England's governor talking, that they are cooperators instead of competitors, that they're collaborating, not competing. And their commitment to cooperation must be total for the optimum outcome to happen. It must trump all motivations of merely survival are self-preservation. More than that, there cannot have even been any competition sufficient enough to have ever seriously undermined their trust and cooperation. No instinct for self-preservation that has ever seriously hurt, much less sacrifice the other or their relationship. If any of this competition remains in them or has ever permanently affected their relationship, then they can't risk not incriminating the other. If they don't live in the fullest cooperation and there's any mistrust or doubt that the other is a full cooperator, then the safest and best thing they can do is to incriminate each other. Then they both get only light sentences. All of that's called the prisoner's dilemma. And that's our dilemma, everyone's dilemma. That's the dilemma of human life in this world. It's also one of the four basic rules of economics. You can't survive in the world of economics without resolving how this principle relates to your dealings with other people. So what are you going to do with it? Even if you're going to reject us and go out into the world, what are you going to do about this problem? Lord King admits that the best of all outcomes is cooperation, but the problem is that you just cannot trust people's commitment to cooperate. Because of this mistrust and the fear it causes, people accept regulation from some overarching power to prevent being defrauded. And then that overarching and necessarily coercive power steps in to take charge and keep people in their dealings in line. Thus, not only the birth of the state, but also its interminable expansion. Now, however, we're in a position to ask what the principle will be that we shall build our lives and relationships upon. We, in the body of Christ, build our relationships on many principles but perhaps the most basic one is the principle of sacred covenant we first make a lifetime binding covenant with god this is what we do in baptism as we've thoroughly explained elsewhere we pledge unto god that we will be a constitutional cooperator according to his plan for human relationships And this means that we are putting to death the competitive nature that would incriminate our brother by blaming him for our envy, jealousy, and competition instead of saying, no, I'd rather be defrauded than betray my brother, as Paul instructed us to do. That's one reason why believers are nonviolent. Nonviolence cuts to the heart of the whole system of competition. It's not just about ceasing to compete to the point of violence. It's ceasing to compete on all those levels that lead up to that point. All those prior levels of competition that destroy cooperation and make it impossible to have a marriage, a family, or a society of peace and goodwill. That's why we turn to the covenant. The new covenant, to be precise. That means that when we accept you and your word, trusting that you will stand by your word of commitment to God, we're taking a great risk. In other words, it's not just you taking the risk and becoming part of the body of believers. This whole body is risking itself and making itself vulnerable to the truth of your sincerity, to the depth of your commitment, and to the strength of your fidelity to your word. The whole question of someone's future, if not the whole church's future, could hang on your ability and willingness to stand by your word all the way to the end. This is how we can see our latter end. Is love going to prevail all the way to that end? There can be no cooperation without this supernal love. If you don't feel it from within, If it doesn't come from inside you, nobody can impose an effective commitment on you from the outside. Only a sham show of cooperation is possible without this love. A sham and pretense of surface tolerance. Something's got to happen inside of this self-preserving, fallen human nature. Something that changes that nature completely from within. And it is the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, as Paul described it, that begins to displace and cast out all those fears that demand self-preservation at any cost. Thus Jesus had come, he said, to set the captive and the prisoner free, free from the prisoner's dilemma. And all of this brings up the fourth rule in economics. Trust. Melvin King says anytime you have a money market, a market system that depends on credit and all else that characterizes such a system, then you have created a social situation in which you must trust other people, no matter whether you know that they're trustworthy or not. And ultimately, you must trust the issuer of this money and the power that backs both the money and the issuer. If enough people don't have this trust, then the system will fail. In a failing system that lacks sufficient trust, or if there are simply individuals who decide it's more profitable to them to betray everyone's trust, those who don't trust will first try to take advantage of others. That's then called unethical or criminal activity. But without trust, eventually the whole system will collapse. Because as Lord King says, every aspect of life in such a culture ultimately depends on this trust. The growth of economic fraud and political corruption are then the sure signs that this trust is collapsing. Every time you sit in a chair, you trust the one who made it every time you eat a meal in a restaurant you're trusting the cook and management and when you give your credit card to the cashier you're trusting her not to hack into your account every time you eat a meal you're trusting that they're not doing something back there in the kitchen something like one person did when a customer sent their steak back to be cooked a little more well done the cook threw it on the floor stomped on it with his filthy boot then threw it back on the skillet and finally served it to the customer. Or there's the example of what recently happened with Kellogg's Rice Krispies. A whole batch of Rice Krispies and rice cakes were sent out, only to later discover that someone who resented the company in the midnight hours of the manufacturing process had urinated in the entire batch. But that entire batch had already been consumed, and nobody knew a thing about it until afterwards. Or there's the person who put arsenic in Tylenol and people died. Or there's the crushed glass they found in Nestle's chocolate. Or there's the ecstasy pill that they discovered in a four-year-old's hamburger placed there by employees of an Austin-area Sonic. Pretty soon, people begin to ask themselves or say to one another, We need more regulation. We're not secure. We're unsafe. We don't know who to trust. So we're back in the prisoner's dilemma. I don't know if we can cooperate with this guy or this company. I just don't know anymore. Well, that's a breakdown of trust, and that's the cause of the prisoner's dilemma. When, however, trust breaks down enough, the whole system begins to fall to pieces. Will there be any faith on the earth when the Son of Man comes? Jesus asked. So in this atmosphere of growing distrust, We as Christians have battened down the hatches of the covenant, and we have expanded the reaches of the kingdom of God in trying to offer a trustworthy refuge in a storm-tossed world of betrayal, mistrust, insecurity, and hurt. Instead of trusting our provision of life's essentials to strangers whose trustworthiness is unknown to us, we take upon ourselves the responsibilities of growing processing and making essential things for our families, our neighbors, and our friends. We look at our brothers and sisters whom we do trust, and we know that we trust them because we go back to the commitment that they made before God. A vow, a pledge, and in the context of that covenant, we've come to deeply know them even if we've only come to witness their ultimate betrayal of us. And what an enormous betrayal that is when it occurs in such a world and towards such a refuge in that world. Moreover, we have known them in this context of everyday life for years. Their trustworthiness has been tested in the context of our experienced life together. We have known their love for us because we have experienced and felt it, the Spirit always bearing witness that they belong to us and we to them. So we trust that they won't betray us or do these terrible things to us. And we are beginning to see that unless God's people come out of her, my people, they're indeed going to start receiving of Babylon's plagues and partaking in her sins. We now know more than ever why God moved on us long ago to start coming out of our dependence on these systems. And now we must keep expanding that exodus, stretching forth the cords of God's tent, of his kingdom, of our life that is to be complete in him, so that we can bring more and more within the dominion of the kingdom worthy of our trust, the kingdom of covenanted Cooperators. What's happening in a world of diminishing trustworthiness explains why we must expand the trustworthy kingdom of love and voluntary submission. Voluntary because it too comes internally from within. The kingdom of God is within you, Jesus declared. This means, at the very least, that his rule of love, his unique dominion, can only come from within we believe we can take this step and take this risk into the future because we know the one in whom we have believed and we are fully persuaded just as abraham was about what god will bring to pass no matter what it appears to be on the surface so we take a step then we take another step and then another at the beginning we don't know exactly where it will take us or even exactly how. People said we were foolish for going to New York City. Even ministers told my wife and I this. Everyone else who went to Manhattan had failed, or had only barely held on. Well, it was, naturally speaking, pretty crazy to go. But spiritually speaking, it was the most sane thing that we could have done since God told us to do it. Only because of that could we believe. And so we did believe. We trusted that no matter what it looked like, no matter what it felt like, that it would turn out good. It doesn't mean there haven't been struggles. There are always struggles, but with every step you go further down the road. And when you get far enough down that road, then you can look back and say, Oh God, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have done. You say, I once was blind, but now I see. You can sing it over and over again all along the way because you're always looking back and seeing what has been accomplished and taking all those steps of obedience and trust, things that you could never have foreseen. And so you're always seeing the unimaginable things that you were blind to before and you overcome the unseen obstacles all along the way so as to receive the unseen glory and joy that lay at the end. You look back and see the purpose of God, the meaning of God. It is so fulfilling, not only in the joy that you feel, but even also in the struggles you faced and the obstacles you overcame and the grace you experienced through it all. If you always live in anticipation of the worst, then you say, Here I am, young, strong, and healthy, but I don't think I can go through what Sister So-and-So or Brother So-and-So is going through. Of course you don't think you can go through it. That's the flesh talking. And why should you have the grace to go through something that you're not going through? All you need to look at is the next step in your life, and sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof, and you will receive the grace for that. If something else comes, you will receive the grace for that too, and so on, all the way to the end. A grace that is unimaginable, just like airplanes were, will come because God is good, God is true, God is faithful, and he is all these all the time. In every situation, we have a reason to worship. You can put an end to the prisoner's dilemma today, but if you're waiting for someone to give you a written warranty or guarantee about every little thing that may happen to you in life, which would be worth no more than the paper it's written on, then it's just not going to happen. But there is a guarantee that can come where it really matters in your heart bearing witness in the spirit of God that you are a child of God. For faith is the evidence of things hoped for and the title deed of things not seen. So we're all coming together here to see the expansion of this kingdom of love. And hopefully like us, you too see how incredible that is. There's a different kind of prisoner that the Bible calls prisoners of hope. That's the kind of prisoners we are. We see this great purpose expanding, this divine project that we feel so much about, that even visitors feel so much in when they pass by the sign at the entranceway to the land and they talk about the peace and love that they feel here, the things that we feel all the time. And it is all expanding. True, we're sacrificing our lives for the purpose of seeing the kingdom expand in every area of human existence, every area where this love does not yet rule and reign. If you stop in that course of expansion, then you lose the growth that always indicates life, and you will therefore surely die. You must keep pressing on. I'm sorry if it seems uncomfortable or inconvenient to you, but you'll be so thankful that you did it. You may say, I can't take another step or I'll die. Then you shuffle forward and take it and you find yourself moving on. You didn't die and wouldn't you say, even if I do die, then it was worth it. And you keep looking back at all those steps that you have already taken in pressing on and sacralizing your life to make it something sacred and holy a life with transcendent meaning and worth. And then you say, look what God has done. And then you see it leap the Pacific to New Zealand and leap the Atlantic to Africa and Israel. You say that this great purpose I have given my life to is growing. This is life, this is love, this is cooperation, and this is joy. It's expanding even though everything outside this covenant And its life seems to be getting heavier and more oppressive, more regulation, more surveillance, more fear, more terror, more war, more violence, more corruption, more economic failures. But inside the covenant community of the faithful, you keep the pace of grace. And as sin abounds, grace much more abounds. You know the economy is going to collapse, so you're looking ahead. And you're hearing God say that you need to take dominion in new areas, because if it collapses, you will not be covered in those areas. And so you move forward and you offer yourself as a living sacrifice while the outside world contracts and ratchets down, tighter and tighter, till there's no freedom or life left at all. Security may be there, but it's merely the chains that bind and destroy Even enslavement can provide a sort of security. To be a slave in a servile state is a kind of security. If your mind is properly conditioned, you won't even know it until you try to move to do something on your own, to take responsibility for your life, to be free. Then suddenly you see that you're bound up, and they say it's for your own good, that you won't be secure without these chains of regulation and control. That's the kingdom run by fear, and that's the end or destiny of it, enslavement and death. For even death plants you securely in a narrow grave. We know of the one who has the power of the fear of death, and he rules by it. But we also know him who cast out all fear by the love of God that's shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So we keep praying, asking God to refill us, renew us, expand our hearts, expand our love for him, for his people, expand our life in him. We cry out, let me bear witness to something greater than myself. And he answers our prayers and our life expands into something greater. And so you keep on walking. You keep stepping forward, casting out fear with the love that lays down its life a day at a time. I only have one question for those requesting to be immersed into such a life, such a body of believers. When you say you are willing to submit, will your submission be from love or from fear? Are you submitting not because you feel like you have to, and all other options are closing, but because you feel a love in your heart that makes you long to give yourself to something greater than yourself. And so now you're bringing that confession of deep love to the body. And are you confessing that this love will express itself in commitment, not just submission? If it's a commitment of love, you won't go back on it because you'll know what brought you to this in the first place the great and deep love of God. And in every trial, you'll go back to that love. You'll renew yourself in the love that first created your commitment. And you won't slide back into the other obligatory relationship that destroys love. But you'll have something within yourself that you can always return to. Something that says, God renew." that first love in me. I want that love. I want that power. And that renewal of the love of God will renew you in the commitment to submit and obey the will of God and the voice of God as He speaks to you by His Spirit in His body. If you have that, then you're ready, and we're ready for you. But you cannot expect to have it if you do not ask for it. If you do not seek for it, then you will not find it. All of this brings to mind the story of two Christian sisters in Albania during the worst days of tyranny under the old Soviet regime. These sisters in Christ had been arrested because of their faith, but I believe it was under a different pretext than that they were Christians. In effect, their captor said to each young woman about the other, She's already betrayed you. She's already told everything. She's incriminated you to save her own life. But each responded to their interrogator. No, she'd never do that. So they were driving them to their place of execution. Yet then the guard who drove the truck stopped it and told them, Get out. He had seen their faithfulness under duress and couldn't take them to their destruction. The prisoner's dilemma had been solved. Both were set free. Rejoice, O daughter of Zion, and cry aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and able to deliver. He is humble and riding on a donkey, a colt, the offspring of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow for battle he will cut off. He will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from one sea to another, and from the great river to the ends of the earth. And as for you, because of the blood of your covenant, I will send your prisoners from the empty waterless pits. Return to your stronghold, O you prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will return to you a double portion because I have bent Judah as my bow and fired the bow with Ephraim. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and I will set you like the sword of a warrior. And then he promises a double portion. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run into it and are saved. I like the way the song says, how it feels to be free. You know that the prison bars have fallen and the doors have flung open by the release you feel in your heart, the open-hearted release of all the deepest feelings lying within you. This is how it feels to be free. There is a passage of Scripture where God tells Solomon that his presence will be in a certain place, because it is the place that God ordained to be built for his name. The heaven of heavens cannot contain him, but they built a temple for his name, for his identity, the place where he can come, where he knows he is invited because of the sacrifice they made to build this place and worship him. And he felt free to come because they built it according to his pattern rather than their own. That's what we want to be. This is the place of his name. That's why you're baptized into his name, into his identity. You're becoming part of that temple that is Jesus Christ. And you're giving your whole self. You're surrendering your whole self into the best thing that could ever happen to you. And as long as you do that, and you keep your commitment, you're going to feel his presence because he's watching over his house, this place called by his name, and is hearing these prayers and these supplications and these petitions because he has put his name there on you, on us. You belong to him. You are part of his identity, the body called by his name. We may pray once, We may pray a thousand times, but we will not cease praying because we know it's a hundred percent certain that he hears us when we call upon his name from this place built so that his name may dwell there and be glorified. God bless you. The Lord be with you and make his face to shine upon you. Make his presence shine upon you because you're giving yourself to His name, His identity, His purpose. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio message. It is our hope that you have been both challenged and inspired by the Word of God. For other messages and materials by this author please visit www.homesteadheritage.com.